present here with us, leading us in worship, and then uh, you, Father, who are so glorious above. And we join with the company of heaven in praising you and saying how great you are, your glory is above the heavens, you're exalted over all nations. Uh, we ask you to um, help us, Lord, um, to remember your blessings, the promises you've made to us, the things you said are true of us, what's real and lasting and eternal. Forgive us for um, going after the fleeting things, the temporal things, the things that are here for but a moment. Forgive us for all the energy we put into um, what doesn't last. Forgive us for our doubting hearts, our unbelief, the pride and self-sufficiency that helps um, destroy the promises that you give us. Help us to believe them today. Lord, we pray for the nations. We ask your gospel to spread across the world. We ask for peace in the Middle East so that your gospel can run there, for free elections to take place um, in Iraq like they have in Afghanistan for them to go well. We pray for Israel, for peace there. Again, we pray that your gospel could be um, easily disseminated in those countries without hindrance. And we want to ask for, um, for North Korea, that it would be a place that would be open to the gospel. Pray for your uh, people in China, Lord, who are persecuted. I ask you to increase their witness, strengthen it, make it more bold. We ask for our own country that your, your church here, your bride here in America, um, of which we are but a tiny part, would display your glory, would act like you, Jesus, would um, follow you, would um, be repentant, would have faith and zeal to worship you. Pray that your word will be preached faithfully um, today and this place, but also in the city and across this country and churches. Lord, we want to pray for um, people here in our midst that are suffering, that are struggling um, with depression, with despair, with doubts about the meaning of life, the goodness of life. Pray that you would give them um, belief in your promises through your Holy Spirit's power in their heart. Pray for people who... Um, overwhelmed with busyness and demands on their lives, um, whether it's through work or family, small children, um, I pray that you would help them have rest and peace in the midst of this time. Lord, I pray that you would um, strengthen the joy of all of us, help us all to believe that you're real, uh, that you're present with us, like Craig said, that while we drive in the car, we work we're at home, that you're always there. Your promises are always real. Help us to believe these things now by the presence of your Spirit. Amen. We're going through the book of Romans, and we're in chapter 4 today, the last section in chapter 4. So we're going to start with verse 18 and um, go down through the end of the, the chapter. Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead 
since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. This past week at staff meeting, uh, Josh Quasney, the youth pastor, uh, led us in reading The Pilgrim's Progress. You may not know, it's, uh, it's actually the best-selling book in the English language after the Bible. Now, if you don't know the story, it's an allegory of two pilgrims. Um, the main character's name is Christian, and his cohort is Hopeful. And they're traveling to the celestial city. And um, at this point in the, in, the, in the book that Josh read to us from, they um, have, they're going along and things are going very well, which is rare in the book. But things are going well, and, um, and they're, they're very confident. In fact, they become overconfident. They begin to trust in their senses. They begin to trust their own calculations. And pretty soon they're off the beaten path, trying to take a shortcut, and they end up in um, Doubting Castle. And it's run by this giant named Despair. And the giant Despair locks them in a dungeon, and he beats them every day, and he tries to get them to kill themselves. And um, the, the moment, uh, uh, the, the grand moment in the story that Josh read us came when Christian and Hopeful were ready to give up. And all they could think about was their pain and the death that they're about to experience and um, the, just the beatings and what was going to come tomorrow. They, they basically faced the facts that they were going to die. But then at that moment, Christian remembered that he had a key in his pocket. He had had it all along, but he remembered at that moment that he had it. And the key could unlock any door. And so the key to escaping from uh, the dungeon of despair and uh, the, the castle of doubt was called promise. That was the name of the key, which is very intentional. The Bunyan calls it promise. Because what he's saying is, the way that you get out of despair and darkness, the dark night of the soul, the low times, is you remember the promises of God. And if you believe in the promises of God, that will get you out of this terrible time. And that's what we're talking about today, the promises of God. In fact, um, Paul in this passage makes reference to the greatest story of promise in the Old Testament, which is the story of Abraham. You know the story probably. Um, Abraham lived up in Ur of the Chaldees. That's probably near modern-day Iraq. He was very wealthy. His father was a, a, a kind of a prince. And Abraham had many servants. He had lots of goats and cattle and a huge inheritance. But God, this mysterious God who he had never heard of, came to him one day while he was up there in Ur, and said, Abraham, I want you to leave this place. I want you to travel south. I want you to go hundreds of miles 
And I want you to, um, to stop in a place where I'm going to tell you to stop. And here's why you can trust me. God says, I promise you, number one, that a great nation will come from you. A huge nation will come from you. Number two, um, that every nation in the world will one day look back on you and call you Father. That all the nations in the whole earth will one day look back on you and, and look to you as their spiritual father. Two incredible promises to Abraham. So Abraham takes him up on the deal, and he goes south, and he buys this plot of land in this unknown region called Canaan. And eventually, um, time um, marches forward, and Abraham still has no son. And so he begins to doubt. And God comes to him in a vision, and he says, Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. And Abraham says, how can you say that when I don't even have a son? You promised me a great nation would come from me. I don't even have a son to my name. And God, uh, at that point, uh, performs this strange drama where he cuts this bird in half. He lays the carcass on either side of himself, and he walks through the middle. And he essentially promises Abraham at that point, may it be done to me as it was done to those birds if I do not answer every single one of the promises I made to you. And so that gives Abraham some kind of hope and some more resolve to believe. And he continues to believe, but time continues to march forward. There's no baby. Abraham becomes uh, older and older and older. Eventually he turns 86 years old. And he kind of gives up on the promise. It's a medical impossibility that he could have a child at that point. And so he turns um, to his own resources, which is what we always do in unbelief. We turn to our own resources, and he decides if God's not going to make the promise come true, maybe he can do something about it. And so Sarah gives him um, her servant girl named Hagar, and he tries to have a son through Hagar. In fact, they do have a son, Ishmael. And, uh, and yet, this is not the son of the promise. God comes to Abraham 13 years later. Abraham's 99 years old. He's got a 13-year-old son. And, and God, uh, this is the episode that, that Paul's talking about here in this passage, this episode when he's 99 years old. The first word out of God's mouth are these, um, I am the Lord Almighty. In other words, I can do everything I told you. And he says, I will give you the offspring I promised, <clears throat> but now you've got to show me that you still believe in me. And what I want you to do is I want you to circumcise every male, all your servants in your household. And uh, that's actually a very dangerous thing uh, <clears throat> for Abraham to do. Um, it, it's, it's a huge risk. He'd obviously meet a lot of resistance from the males. Um, but it's also a sign that, uh, in a sense, uh, he's coming very close to losing his ability to generate a son. It's very intentional. It's a risky thing. And, uh, and so when Abraham hears this, he just laughs at God. And he says, I'm 100 years old and my wife's 90. How in the world are we going to have a, a child now? And God says, next year, by this time, you're going to have a son, a son and his name's going to be Isaac. So God gets very specific. And so Abraham goes out and he circumcises his whole household. And a year later, Isaac's born and 
then later on in the Old, Old Testament, you see that the whole set of promises that God made to him that comes true. There's this great nation, Israel. And today, 4,000 years later, we sit here and we look back and we call Abraham father in North America, in a country he could never have even dreamed about. So every single one of these promises that God made to Abraham has come to pass. God answers all his promises. But I want to look at three things about this story. Number one, uh, God promises life in the midst of death. That's number one. In the midst of barrenness, God promises life. Number two, um, because he promises us life in the midst of death, we don't believe him. It's very hard to believe. The facts, we look at the facts and they, they all tell us uh, it can't happen. It's impossible. So, because God promises us life in the midst of death, we doubt. But number three, when we do believe and we take risky action like Abraham did with the circumcision, then God is glorified. Those are the three things I want to look at. Now, first of all, God promises us life in the midst of death. Look at verse 18. It's almost a uh, contradiction. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all hope and in hope. That seems like a contradiction. I think that the against all hope means there's no human possibility that it could happen. Um, and it's kind of like the woman that comes to Jesus who has had the issue of blood for uh, dozens of years and no doctor has ever been able to help her. That's what the against all hope means. There's no more human possibility. Uh, but the in hope means that God's omnipotence is still at work. Uh, you see that in verse 21. See, Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. So the, the, the against all hope is Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90 and there's no way they can have a child. In hope is God is omnipotent. And those facts are like sticks uh, that are just blown away by the hurricane of God's omnipotence. There's no resistance at all um, to God's omnipotence. Even those facts. As, as difficult as they are. And so what you see here, I think Paul is intentionally doing this, is he is, on the one hand, this great, great promise. Um, his offspring are going to be like the, like the stars in the heaven. And uh, he's going to be the father of many nations. That's, that's the greatness of the promise. Paul puts that right next to the deadness of the situation. And see, that's that... Uh, his body was as good as dead, he was about 100 years old, and Sarah's womb was also dead. So there's this gap. The greatness of the promise, the impossibility or the deadness of the situation. There's that gap. And that's always there in God's promises. It's true of us. In God's promises to us, there's also a gap like that. Now, God does not promise us children at the age of 90 and 100. And I am not uh, unhappy that, that he has not promised us that. <clears throat> I can tell you as having two children that um, it wouldn't be a great thing. But um, those promises are only for Abraham. And yet there is promise for us too. And the promise for us is also life in the midst of death. But in our case, it's eternal life instead of eternal death. 
You see, the, the promises to Abraham were like those, um, those figures on the wall that children love to look at where you make shadows like a dog or a duck, you know, and um, they're, they cast shadows on the wall. <clears throat> That's what the promises to Abraham were like. They're those shadows. They are foreshadowing something real. And the reality, the fingers themselves, are what Jesus did. Because the ultimate gap was um, that Jesus had promised eternal life. He had promised an everlasting kingdom. And yet here he was on the cross, and he was wilting under Roman torture. All his, all his followers had deserted him. He was completely powerless. And you have this gigantic gap right there. That's, that's the same kind of thing. Life is promised in the midst of death. But we know that in the tomb, when they put him in the tomb and buried him, there was the same kind of hidden omnipotence that was working in Abraham's life, was working in that tomb. In the midst of all that death, there was life. The promise of life was working powerfully. And eventually Jesus rose from the grave and he conquered death for us. Now, the same hidden omnipotence works in our lives. Because, you see, we face death all the time. And I don't mean physically dying yourselves. We will all do that. But until we do that, we face death daily. There are daily reminders that we are going to die, that everybody's going to die, that all of this universe, in fact, is kind of going to die, is dying right now. Um, one thing is that uh, we, you know, we shed skin, we grow old, hair falls out, um, arms and legs uh, kind of stop working, joints stop working. We feel that in our, in our bodies. I'm feeling that now. You know, in my, my mid-30s, I mean, you kind of start to realize your body is not going to keep going forever. But um, there's also, you know, little things like just the fact that things wear down. Cars die and parts of your home start to fall in and computers crash. All these little things are reminders. We're in a universe that is dying all the time. But, it, you know, it's actually a lot worse than that. Um, our consciences, when we sin, are kind of shut off. And our consciences are seared. Like, you know, put a hot skillet on them. And they die, too. And so do relationships. Um, when sin and hardness of heart creeps into a relationship, a lot of times that relationship will die. And that is a really painful thing. And you might be experiencing that. The death of a relationship. But, but most painful of all is when we, um, we, we know people that we love that are either dying or have died. And, uh, and that, most of all, reminds us of the sting of death. And it's a horrible thing. Uh, it's such a horrible thing that when Jesus um, saw Lazarus dead, um, it says he, he sighed in his inner being. Really, the word there is more like he snorted. He was furious. He was infuriated when he saw death. And the reason he was so infuriated is the same reason that you feel so much pain if you ever have known anyone that's close to you that has died. It's, it's a horrible thing. It's not a natural thing. But the promise is that there is hidden omnipotence working in every one of those situations. That God's promises are, when your heart is broken, I'm going to restore your feelings. 
When, you're, when your conscience is seared, I'm going to forgive you your sins. I'm going to restore your conscience. I'm going to bring it back to life. Um, when your relationships die, I'm going to be there with you always. My presence will always be with you. And when your loved ones die, I'm going to raise them up on the last day. You're going to see them again. He promises us life in the midst of death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will not die, but will live forever. He promised that to Martha and Mary at the tomb of Lazarus. Right there, when their, their brother was dying, they promised life in the midst of death. <clears throat> so God promises us life in our death. That's the first point. And because death is so overwhelming, and not just death, but all the reminders of death, all the intimations of death, that overwhelms our minds, and so we have such a hard time believing in those promises of life. Um, my second point. See, one of the problems with a promise is that it's invisible. It's something that, that enters your mind through your ears. You hear it, and it goes into your mind, but you never quite see it. And if, if God had been um, a more seeker-sensitive God, I think he would have revealed himself to us in video clips, where he would have shown the Red Sea party, and you could download that and just you know, point and click, and you'd get the, the image of the Red Sea parts. He would have seen this story. You would have seen... Uh, him come back, you know, have this child at a hundred Isaac. He would have seen the actual videotape of the resurrection from the, the, the tomb. But he didn't even have pictures in the Bible. And so what we're left with is these things he tells us. He tells us things. Full of words and promises, this Bible. And he expects us to uh, hear them and believe them. Verse 18 uh, says that it had been said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. It's very important that it was said to him. God speaks to people, and he expects them to remember the words that he says to them. He expects them to store them up in their hearts like Mary did when the, ga when the angel came to her. She treasured those things in her hearts. That's what he expects from us, that when he says things to us in his word, we will store them up in our hearts so we can believe them. It's very hard. Uh, when God promises us life and we see death, the cynicism, the skepticism just comes rushing in. And what happens is our, our unbelief kind of feeds on facts. It like eats up these facts. It was like the facts that, uh, that, that Paul's talking about in verse 19. The fact that his body was as good as dead. The fact that he was 100 years old. The fact that Sarah's womb was dead. We point to facts and we say, there's no way it could be true. Our unbelief always feeds on what we see. And the, the promises that God makes to us, they, they hide in our blind spots. You know, they're like right here behind our ears or something where we can't see them. And so we just, we just kind of let them go. Um, when, you, when you start seeing all the, the death around you, what you do is you say, I knew it was too good to be true. That always happens. You say, I knew it was too good to be true. I'm going to have to do this on my own. And you grit your teeth and you do what Abraham did with Hagar. You turn to something else, to your own kind of calculations, instead of the living God. This is a small example, but I did something similar this past week. 
I uh, stupidly scheduled myself to preach here right now at 10.30 and also at New Hope at 10.30. And uh, I obviously couldn't be at both places at once. Um, somebody suggested a, a video feed, um, but I didn't think that was a good idea. So I, uh, this was Tuesday, middle of the day, where I realized this. It came up on my little, you know, my little Palm Pilot thing. <laughs> on the, you know, the moment that I realized it was like way too late to call anybody. And I just, I gritted my teeth, I pulled out my cell phone, and I started dialing tons and tons of numbers, and I left messages and messages, and I knew no one was going to call me back. I was just, I was terrified. And that's a small thing, but we do it all the time with God's promises. We forget He's there, we forget He's real, the facts come to our, you know, to our, they, they slam us right in the eyes, and, and we just completely turn to our own resources and forget about God's promises. And I imagine, um, I imagine what a phone call would have been like from, from Abraham to his dad, Terah, back there in uh, Ur, and he's telling his dad about his decision um, to circumcise his whole household, you know, and, and his dad goes, well, you, you left about a hundred years ago, you left us for no apparent reason, this invisible God comes to you out of nowhere, tells you to go south. You go south. We don't even know where you are. You've been down there about 80 years, and you've got this wife, Sarah, who can't produce any children. If you were smart and, and you were like us, you would just go to a, you know, some servant girl and let her give you all these children. But you keep waiting, and now you're 99 years old, and you're telling me that God is going to give you this great nation, to come out of you, and so you're going to circumcise your children? And you might have had a conversation like that with a parent of yours before, where you had some really risky decision you had to make in faith. It doesn't make any sense to the world. And try telling somebody that you're going to resurrect from the dead who's a skeptic. I mean, that doesn't sound a whole lot better, actually. You know, when I die, I know that God is going to raise me from the dead. It's not likely to happen. And so... God promises us these extravagant things. There's always this huge gap that only his omnipotence can make up. And because there are such extravagant promises, we, we doubt them. We always doubt them. But if we do believe them, if we believe them, then God gets incredible glory. He is glorified when we believe them. Uh, verses 20 and 21. <coughs> Abraham did not waver through unbelief. Now, he did waver in the incident with Hagar. He didn't waver about the circumcision. That's what Paul's talking about. <clears throat> he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being persuaded fully that God had the power to do what he had promised. I like that little phrase, persuaded fully. It's one of my favorite words in this passage. It's a single Greek word that literally means to fill up a, a huge glass of water with liquid. And I think about that like <clears throat> our minds are like this big empty glass. And we can either fill them with facts, evidence, unbelief, or we can fill them up with the promises that God has made us. And to be fully persuaded is to have that glass filled with God's words in our mind. And when Abraham took the risk of circumcising his whole household, undoubtedly his mind was 
fully persuaded, was filled to the brim with God's promise to him. My uh, daughter is two and a half, likes to get up on top of our Honda Accord, and my, my wife hates this, in, uh, in the parking lot right there in our house, and she, she kind of runs, you know, the few feet you can run on the hood of a Honda Accord, and she leaps, and I catch her. She leaps into my arms. And we don't do this a lot. I don't recommend it, so. <clears throat> um, it's not an endorsement for that. But I love it uh, when I look into her eyes when she comes running off that hood. And uh, I see that gleam of confidence that I know my, my daddy's going to catch me. It's incredible. She just, you know, just throws her arms out there. Sometimes, um, one time it happened when I was on the ground. I was just getting up, and she just comes running. <laughs> and I had to kind of catch her. And I thought, what would, it, what would happen if somebody out there were watching that? Me on the ground, just getting up when she's jumping? They would look at me and say, that guy knows what he's doing. That guy is confident to catch that girl. Um, and that's the way it is with God. When, when we take this incredible risk and believe his promises, his extravagant promises, believe that his omnipotence is working, he gets incredible glory. Not only because he loves to see our you know, shining face of confidence, but he also loves it when other people look at us and praise him because they know how great a provider he is. Um, when I first became a Christian, I did some things that were probably foolish, but they were definitely full of faith. Uh, one thing, I started using God as an alarm clock, and um, I didn't like alarm clocks, so I said, God, would you get me up for this exam at 8.30 um, tomorrow? And, you know, well, the amazing thing is he actually did it many, many times. I don't remember it not working. Um, another thing I did is I, I took a trip to a friend's house in Northern Virginia, and I didn't want to really call them up. I didn't know how to get directions, so I said, well, maybe you could help me be my map quest. And sure enough, God got me to this house. Um, and then I also hitchhiked uh, from the, um, the mountains of Scotland, um, the highlands of Glencoe, to this train station in Glasgow. I had to catch a train. And I got a truck and two cars and a city bus, and I got there like 10 minutes before the train left. Now, those are not, like, those are not things that you, know, you want to go out and imitate, but they are examples of a heart that was full of God's promise. Absolutely full to the brim, fully persuaded that God was real, he was watching me, I could talk to him, he actually had my back at all points. And what I worry about today is in my uh, wisdom, in my prudence, that I have lost that. I mean, I don't think I would do any of those things today. And uh, maybe that's a sign of wisdom. Maybe that's a sign of a loss of confidence in the reality of God. One person I always like to think about and, and meditate on is George Mueller. And if you've never heard of George Mueller, he was a pastor in, in Bristol, England, about the same time as Wesley. This guy ran an orphanage for years, took care of hundreds of children in his lifetime. And uh, he never asked for a single penny. Um, he earned all his money through um, anonymous donations. They just kept coming in. And every day, he would pray to God in the morning, we need this, we need that, we need that. You know, food, shelter, clothing, God provided every day. George Mueller. Somebody looking at George Mueller would, would say, that God that he serves is truly an amazing God. That is a God that is glorified. 
And, and yet, uh, and even small things, you and I, every day, we, we do not believe God's promises. And um, one example, that, um, two from my own life. One was um, a couple weeks ago, I was at a restaurant, and my family was there, my mom's birthday. My sister-in-law um, you know, said, what did you preach on today, Ben? I hate it when they ask that, because I know as soon as I start talking about the actual content, they're going to start giving me those looks that, like, is he crazy? And we thought he was crazy. I guess we know he's crazy now. So I just said, oh, there's something in Romans 3, as if that was going to help them, you know, ask another question. That completely ended the conversation. And I think at that point that uh, the food that was in front of me was far, uh, filling my mind far more than the promises of God. The promise that um, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone that believes. I did not believe that. That was not even in my mind at that moment. Uh, another thing, I was preaching recently, and I looked out, and I noticed that I, it, it, maybe, maybe it wasn't true. It seemed like nobody was listening. And also, it was a tiny group, uh, a tiny crowd. And so, what happened was, like, my heart, you know, kind of stopped. It felt like it stopped, and uh, I literally could not get out another breath. It was very painful to actually speak another word. Um, because my unbelief was just destroying me. And the promises of God, the promise that his word um, is, is a two-edged sword that cuts down to the innermost being of people's hearts. The promise that his word is breathed by his own spirit, that is God-breathed. Um, the promise that his word never returns to him void. I had not remembered any of those things. My mind was not filled with any of those things. My mind was filled with the people's expressions in front of me. Um, you might be having a hard time with coveting or with some kind of um, money issue. Maybe it's a tremendous sense of uh, financial difficulty, like you can't give money away. And I know about that. That's very hard. It's one of those things that's so real that it's hard, it's hard to release uh, our money to God. But there's this promise that he makes. And I think if we fill our minds with that promise, um, we can do things that are like George Mueller, like John Wesley. Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13.5 Keep your hearts free of the love of money because I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never forsake his children. He will give them what they need. Another thing, fear. Money and fear, two big things. Um, I know in my own life I fear for... Um, for my wife's uh, health, for my children's health, I fear. Um, for, you know, the terrorism, for our country's prosperity, I fear. For my own job, my own well-being. Tons of fear in my life. Tons of fear in your life. Fear eats us up. But there's this promise that God makes us, not just one, there's hundreds of them in Scripture about fear. But this one is beautiful. Isaiah 41.10 Fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And again, I want to say, what would it look like if we believed that? If we could live with that promise plain in our minds constantly. The amount of glory that God would get if we could believe that. It's amazing. The way we would take risky action, the way we would look different if we believed that. And I want to end with one more promise. It's a promise that comes right in the middle of death and decay. 
It's a promise that came to Jeremiah. And it's in Lamentations. And you might be struggling with um, depression, doubt, despair, hopelessness. Uh, you're certainly not struggling with it more than Jeremiah was. He was in the depths, as you will realize when I read this. But I want you to hear at the end of this, the way he turns to God's promise. Lamentations 3, 16 through 25. God has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. And so I say to myself, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord is gone. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness, the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, if Jeremiah could say that in the ruins of Jerusalem, how much more can we say that? After Christ has gone to the grave for us and has risen from the dead and promises that we will also rise from the dead. He promises us life in the midst of our death. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to believe it now. We want to cling to your promises like, um, like a child clings to its father and um, ask you to just please, by your Spirit's power, um, put those promises in our minds. We don't have to doubt anymore. We're so sick of doubting. We hate it. Um, we hate the unbelief in our hearts. We ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the singing of this song, through the worship that we're about to do right now, please strengthen our faith and our hope and give us confidence again in your reality and your promises to us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now we're going to take up an offering right now. And uh, as we do that, Shiloh's going to sing. But again, I want you to remember God's promise.